Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the first day of December. And hard to believe that um, 2021 is not far from uh, coming to an end. But I will say this, uh, 2021 has been very successful overall in terms of podcasting. But that's not to say that even when I first started in June of last year that um, I had success. Uh, But now that I'm at 13,000 plays, I feel like uh, I've really hit a, a good milestone. And I hope that many other milestones will come. But that has also been attributed to you all, my fellow listeners, who have made this happen. And even better, uh, yesterday I learned that I picked up a new nation. Uh, For those of you who have been listening from the Czech Republic, uh, thank you for um, stepping up to the plate and contributing uh, to the overall success that I have attained. So the Czech Republic makes the 43rd nation that I'm in around the world outside the United States. So um, thank you to all my... um, listeners from elsewhere around the world who have made this happen. Well, you know, we we have really uh, learned a lot from this book that Harlow Giles Unger wrote, um, American Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution. I've come to realize now, and I should have known this all along, but maybe having read this book not too long ago helped, um, helped what do you call it, solve the mystery as to why it really was, why the movement itself was referred to as the Boston Tea Party. Well, isn't it fair to say that that Parliament repealed lots of duties, most notably the lead, the glass, the paper, the paint, you know, from those Townshend duties? What did Parliament not repeal? The tea. And aren't the colonists still upset over the fact that there is a tax on the tea? Yes. And isn't it fair to say that um, the colonists are getting tea at a much cheaper rate from uh, the Dutch than they would be if they were to receive tea from England through the East India Company? Yes. Is it fair to say, though, that there are uh, merchants in Boston who like Uh, purchasing tea from the East India Company, as we learned from the previous podcast. Yes, but they only make up a very small number, about nine uh, loyalist merchant families. But you know what? Somebody has to buy the tea. Although those nine families are doing the East India Tea Company a nice favor, the East India Tea Company is still... um, dealing with large surplus, a large surplus that they just are having such a hard time selling that it's going to take a miracle to um, sell this excess of surplus of tea to where once it gets sold, then maybe the colonists uh, won't be, in their eyes, a pain in the butt. But the reason why it, it truly is referred to as the Boston Tea Party, it's because the Sons of Liberty and just colonists in general came together and protest over the tea that their movement itself revolved around revolved around the um, what do you call it the opposition of an item that they for one they didn't have a problem consuming but they didn't want to consume it from the enemy in other words they didn't want to be dealing with biz, de- doing business from an enemy who has um, in their eyes, 
been enacting legislation where the, where the legislation itself did not warrant consent. That is proper consent. It did not um, provide a, um, a positive uh, foreseeable outlook. When, of course, in Sam Adams's eyes, when consent gets violated, then how can any contract between two parties be valid, or I should say relevant? So in this uh, particular uh, podcast episode that we're going to be uh, discussing, we are going to be um, focusing on the year 1770. Now, we talked a little bit about 1770 from the previous podcast, but we're going to talk more about 1770. And uh, to me, 1770 is a very, very um, watershed year. But isn't it fair to say that from the time the French and Indian War ended up until the time when the colonists finally declare their separation from England, which won't come till 1776, that, there, that each year seems to be like one watershed year after another? Perhaps. But 1770, it's the start of a new decade, and we have to wonder, okay, what else is going to escalate? What else is going to happen that will make the situation, or what do you call it, that will make the, the existing tensions with the mother country worse than they were three years earlier with the Townshend duties and five years earlier with the Stamp Act? So, our leadoff question for this podcast is the following. Did Lord Frederick North's stance on retaining the tea tax result in further escalation among the colonists. I believe that's a no-brainer, but I'm just going to but I had to ask the question just for the heck of it to see what to see what you all might, you know, react in terms of the question being asked. Well, the answer is yes. Bostonians most particularly resorted to acts of violence, being that of the mobs you know, those unruly crowds whom went about breaking windows to vandalizing homes and businesses of those loyal to the crown, a.k.a. England. I tell you, these unruly crowds sure have access. They sure can get around. And think about this, folks. They don't have, you know, there's no such thing as the Internet back then. They don't have, you know, any kind of, you know, social media or telephones to call up one another and say, "Hey, let's go hit the, let's go hit these roads and um, where uh, business businesses belonging to uh, loyalist uh, shopkeepers are. Let's go see if we can uh, target them and um, vandalize them all in the name of all in the name of opposing England." Well, it's fair to say that many of these um, members of the unruly crowds know of people who directly who are of, uh, of the loyalist faith. These aren't just strangers attacking people's homes. It's fair to say that neighbors by now are turning on one another, all in the name of loyalties and where their loyalties stand, not just short-term but long-term. Between January and February 1770, fights between British soldiers and unruly crowds, a.k.a. the mob, become daily common norms. Not just for Boston, but as far, but in cities as far south as New York. After all, didn't the Sons of Liberty originate in New York? 
Isn't it where the Stamp Act Congress took place five years earlier? Yes. Yes, New York has its share of loyalists, and it's probably fair to say that any city prior to 1776, you know, prior to when the colonists finally do declare their separation from England, there are still many uh, cities in America that have uh, strong um, pockets of loyalists. Most notably, Philadelphia is one. Um, Charleston, South Carolina, I'm not 100% sure on, but it could be you know 50-50 split in terms of the loyalists and patriots. But in New York, yes, New York has a, a strong pocket of loyalists, but at the same time, there is a a uh, ever-growing number of those whom no longer want to be loyal to the crown. So when we think of these unruly crowds fighting with British soldiers, yes, the British, may, in terms of uh, the presence of soldiers, uh, came about in 1768, two years earlier. However, soldiers are not just confined to Boston. There are uh, soldiers in New York. So... Back to Boston, uh, really no street corner in Boston was immune from the violence and people from small merchants, shopkeepers, craftsmen. And pay attention to this one, folks. To the youngest being Boston's children are all contributing to the ever-growing tension of escalating violence unsurmounting. There's just no end to it. All of this involving British soldiers, or what we would call the Redcoats. And why were they called the Redcoats? Because a lot of it had to do with their attire. Uh, you know, when I think of British soldiers, I think of them with a red coat on. They may have had uh, some light blue and, and some white on their uniforms, but the majority of their coats were red. So that's how the uh, rebels, or what we call the patriots, viewed their enemy as redcoats. But yes, let's think about this, folks. Those who are, are who are the of the unruly crowd are not what we would call. It'd be easy to think of them as uneducated people, but it turns out that many of these individuals who are part of the unruly crowd are actually everyday workers, small merchants. You know, people who may not have the same status as John Hancock, but yet, but it's probably fair to say that some of these small merchants probably um, on the lower tiers of the merchant spectrum did do business with John Hancock at one time. So we've got small merchants, our shopkeepers, and our craftsmen. You know, think about, you know, craftsmen or from a variety of professions. You know, one profession I could think of when it comes to craftsmen might be that of a silversmith. And isn't Paul Revere a part of that Sons of Liberty movement? Yes, he is. Do you think Paul Revere might have been advocating for some of this activity? It's possible, but when I think, if I can think of anyone who really, really instigated this mob-like activity, and we'll talk more about it here shortly, but if I th can think of anyone off the top of my head, it's none other than Mr. Samuel Adams, John Adams's cousin. And if I had to pick a second person who's behind it, I would say James Otis Jr. James Otis Jr. and Samuel Adams are, are basically like two peas in a pod. They 
think alike, which is not bad, but they but they also know how to go about effectively um, getting um, the results they want. And is it fair to say that they could be the perpetrators behind the um, escalating um, levels of mob crowd violence in Boston? There's no doubt about that. An absolute yes. Well, here's another question. Going into 1770, was Thomas Hutchinson and his family immune from mob radicalization? Remember who Thomas Hutchinson is, folks? He's um, the governor of Massachusetts. You know, he's related to um, Chief Justice uh, Peter Oliver. They are brother-in-laws. So therefore, the Hutchinsons and the Olivers are loyalists. Loyalists without, without fail. But the question is, going into 1770, was Thomas Hutchinson and his family immune from mob radicalization? The answer is no. February 1770 saw mob crowds go as far as marching to Governor Hutchinson's home with, peti with a petition. And of course, we know what a petition is, a document. And this document had signatures from mob from uh, what we call um, mob crowd members or just people who make up this, uh, who make up a particular, um, what we might think of in today's time as like an interest group or a political um, organization. But it might be fair to say that even the Sons of Liberty were their own um, political organization of their time. But yes, this petition has been signed by um, countless numbers of, of the mob who are present at um, on Hutchinson's property, this petition demand, pretty much demands that the Hutchinson family turn over an order of tea that was received from the British East India Company. I'm beginning to wonder if all this vandalization and violence, it's, it could be over a lot of things. Yes, it could be just the presence of not liking British troops on your own soil. But there also has to be something else that makes you want to go to this extreme. It has to be over an issue or two. In this case, it's an issue over the tea. After all, Parliament upheld the uh, tax on tea. It got rid of everything else, but the reason why Parliament wants the tax on the tea, it's because Parliament wants to assert its, its authority over the colonies by saying, hey, look, we, not only do we need just money, but by getting the money from you all, it's our way of, of telling you all who's in control and who's not. Well, Thomas Hutchinson himself demanded to see the petition from the mob leaders present. <laughs> do you think the mob leaders were going to give it to him? No, they didn't. It's probably fair to say if the mob leaders had given it to him that Hutchinson would have... Um, torn it up in front of them. That's just my opinion. Hutchinson firmly believed in the king. He firmly believed in the power of parliament. He firmly believed that the king's authority reigned above everyone else below him. So Thomas Hutchinson did, however, proclaim his authority to the mob, and that included having them be dispersed. And the mob did disperse. So, who do you think was responsible for categorizing, or I should say, placing the radicals into multi-groups, or in multiple groups? 
After all, you know, these mob groups aren't confined to just one group. You know, if you put a thousand people in one mob group, it's fair to say that they would all be exposed pretty quickly by British authority. But by, but perhaps by placing them in different uh, groups, it will make it harder for the British to be able to pinpoint where everybody is coming from. In other words, you don't want to have but so many people in one crowd, because if you do, then you're pretty much giving yourself away to the enemy. So who do you think was responsible for categorizing or placing the radicals into multiple groups? How about Samuel Adams? I think that probably, would, to me, would be a no-brainer just because he's the one that, um, for better or for worse, is keeping this flame of what he knows is an all-out inevitable reality, being that of not just independence from England, but separation from England. He knows that it's just a matter of time before the inevitable will ultimately happen. Do you think it's probably fair to say that in the eyes of the British and the Crown, who do you think is public enemy number one on their list by now? It's none other than Samuel Adams. I hate to say that, but if you are the British... If you're on the side of the British, if you're on the side with the Loyalists in Massachusetts, if there's anybody that you could despise, and yes, you could despise the mob crowds all you want, but if there's anyone that you could despise who has been instigating these mob activities that have resulted in the vandalism and destruction of um, Loyalist businesses, businesses um, run by um, those uh, who are loyal to the Crown, you can blame none other than Mr. Samuel Adams. Um, you could blame another man, if you'd like, being James Otis Jr., whom, um, whom um, is really Samuel Adams' sidekick. So how Samuel Adams goes about categorizing, or I should say placing the radicals into multiple groups, one group was trained to serve as a military, or what we would call a special ops force. Then you had shopkeepers and craftsmen whom got placed in another group. And then you had a group that was comprised of men disguised as Indians. I'm wondering if those men whom are disguising themselves as Indians could have a role down the road in the not-so-far-distant future. Why do you think that Samuel Adams would have wanted some of the men to be disguised as Indians? Do you think it was just a way to maybe catch the enemy off guard, perhaps? But at the same time, do you want to um, expose yourself to where if you don't have any kind of, um, how do you call it, if you don't, I, if you don't um, do something to, um, you don't want to be just caught uh, red-handed, but you also want to um, disguise yourself. You want to blend yourself into where, if you appear differently than you normally would, then maybe the enemy's not going to think of you as someone who's a red flag. I don't know. You know, people can do all kinds of things in terms of uh, disguising themselves, but hey, desperate times call for desperate measures. Were many American women of upper social and economic statuses opposed to the idea of radicals wanting tea removed altogether. 
Okay, for all of you ladies out there listening, let's take a step back in time and and you should ask yourselves, hey, if, if I was a woman, I mean, if we were women of upper tier status in American society, do we want radicals below us telling us what we can and cannot drink in our homes? No. Is it fair to say that um, women should have the freedom to choose what they think is um, an appropriate ladylike beverage to be serving in their home? Yes, they should. Is it fair to say that tea has become that number one beverage for women of the upper tier status or upper tier uh, status society in um, America at this time, isn't it fair to say that they should be allowed to um, have the say over the consumption of tea in their home? Without a doubt, yes. For one, tea had become a staple beverage in their homes, but tea itself also gave upper tier women something to identify with. And promote. Think about this. Women, you know, they can't vote. They can't hold any public office. But they can certainly promote tea to other um, women. Not only from within their inner circle. But say women um, whom are accompanying their husbands from overseas. And they are looking for something to um, to consume. That they can, um, that will not only make them feel welcome. But they can blend into a greater inner circle with other women whom share the same uh, status as they do. Well, and think about this too. Tea alone was not a, a, a beverage that was just consumed once a day or once every other day. For uh, women of the upper ranks of um, an American society at this time, the beverage was consumed more than once per day. It was usually twice a day, being at breakfast and then at afternoon. Your afternoon beverage about 2 or 3 o'clock. You know, your midday beverage. Well, you know, I mentioned it before and I'll mention it again. Uh, believe it or not, um, I am having a glass of tea myself. Or maybe a cup of tea would sound better to say. I do like drinking tea. But I also have to remind myself too that um, drinking tea in the 18th century was not a very uh, popular thing for a man to be consuming. I think most men would have frowned upon me in the 18th century and said, Kirk, have you lost your mind? What's the matter with you? Are you not man enough to be drinking gin and tonic or um, hard liquor? I'm just, I'm trying to, um, you know, put myself in the shoes of 18th century, um, everyday 18th century people when it comes to a beverage consumption. But, you know, yes, I like drinking a good uh, cup of tea and um, I like a variety of uh, different kinds of teas, but... I think what we should remind ourselves is that, um, of this, the teas that were consumed by women of upper tier status, um, during this time going into 1770, uh, to name a few were what's called bohia. That is black tea. And I did a little research on it and the bohia, AKA black tea was grown from the Wuyai mountains of Northern Fujian, China. Then there was, um, Another uh, tea that women of the upper tier status consumed was known as the Hyson, or Hyson, H-Y-S-O-N, green tea from the Anhui, Anuhai province of China. So I'm sure many of you all are wondering, 
what kind of tea are women consuming at this time? You know, we don't have twinings just yet. We don't have Bigelow tea, uh, to name a few of the teas that you would probably find at the uh, grocery stores. But the tea is coming, obviously, from overseas. Many of you all probably don't know about this man. I did not know anything about him until I read the book. He may not he he may not have attained the same uh, level status as forefathers of ours like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams did, but he is someone of, of uh, importance to mention here. Who is William Molyneux? And his last name is spelled M-O-L-Y-N-E-U-X. William Molyneux is a supporter of Samuel Adams's mob radicalization movement. Okay, hey, you know, Samuel Adams is always appreciative of anybody supporting his uh, mob radicalization ideologies and movements. His primary occupation is that of being in the um, merchant business. William Molyneux helped um, establish the Manufactory House, which produced cloth locally versus getting, or rather I should say receiving the cloth from overseas in England. Remember John Hancock a few years earlier in October 1767 um, introduced a resolution encouraging the colonists to grow more things locally versus relying upon goods coming from England, a.k.a. a boycott. And while, yes, the idea of um, making things locally is great, and while some people have the resources to do that, we still have to keep in mind that not everyone does. However, um, William Molyneux was successful in that um, his manufactory house produced um, thousands and thousands of, um, of um, locally grown, oh, well, I wouldn't say locally grown, but handmade um, textiles or, um, or clothing in the, or fabrics in the form of a cloth. And he probably saved countless um, amounts of money from not having to rely upon it from coming overseas. But, of course, that's not going to make the crown happy at all. The crown can come back and say that the colonists, most notably the people of Massachusetts, violated their end of the contract. Well, come February 1770, William Molyneux decides to take it upon himself by organizing mob activity movements. Okay? So he's following in Samuel Adams' footsteps. He's becoming his own promoter of this activity. And his um, movements, that, uh, or I should say his promotion of mob activity, activity movements, goes about in the results, or rather I should say it goes about resulting in mob activities that led to the damaging of homes where shipments of tea were stored. Okay? Think about this. They know, where, they know of um, people who are not only just loyal to the crown, but are, um, whom are purchasers, purchasers of the tea. And so they are coming to their homes and trying to do whatever they can to destroy the property, all in the name because these people have the tea. And it's not just so much because they have the tea, but it's also in retaliation against parliaments upholding the tax on the tea from 1767 those infamous Townshend duties, a.k.a. the Townshend Acts. Let's go to uh, late February of 1770, February 22nd. What's going on here? 
William Molyneux and a group of mob followers. We're going to get into some sensitive stuff right here, folks. So um, pay very careful attention to what's going to be unfolding, especially on February 22nd of 1770. William Molyneux and a group of mob followers make their way to Ebenezer Richardson's shop. You know, when I think of uh, someone's name being that of Ebenezer, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is the first person that comes to my mind. I don't know why I think that, but, but I just do. But believe it or not, there is a man named Ebenezer Richardson. Why are they coming to Ebenezer Richardson's shop? Well, Ebenezer Richardson is a customs collector for the crown. Oh boy, don't those um, unruly crowds, don't they just love the customs collectors? Heck no. But they will do anything in their power to let the customs collectors know just how much they despise they just how much they despise them, but how much they despise uh, of, of them as a whole as to what it is they're doing. And that is collecting not just the money on the goods, but they are also trying to uh, engage in acts where writs of assistance are violated. In other words, you've got these customs collectors coming onto people's properties, searching they're searching a home or searching a um, searching like a vessel, for example, like what happened with John Hancock a few years earlier, but doing so without probable cause. So that's another reason why William Molyneux and these um, and his group of mob followers are making their way to Ebenezer Richardson's shop. It's not so much that he's a customs collector for the crown, but that he supports the idea of uh, conducting um, search and seizure uh, tactics without any writs of assistance, or I should say uh, written orders, that is written orders that don't ha have any sign of probable cause. So, you know, they um, start harassing Ebenezer Richardson. They, um, as a matter of fact, they um, pelt, um, pelt Ebenezer Richardson with stones. Now, let's keep in mind that in the 18th century, if you own a business, is it fair to say that your house is right nearby your business? Yes. So, you know, we don't have cars, obviously, back then. Of course, the closest thing we can get to a modern-day car is going to be a horse and buggy, or just a horse by itself. But we have to remember that um, people's uh, businesses are not like five and ten miles away from their home. They are pretty much adjacent to one another. So the mob crowd is harassing Ebenezer Richardson to the point where they are not only chasing after him after he leaves his business, but as soon as he makes his way inside his house, he gets his family. He takes his family and he hides them. So, yes, he goes about not only defending himself and his family. Ebenezer Richardson gets his musket prepared. He's going to fire into the crowd, folks. He, I mean, I don't think he, I don't believe he wants to physically hurt someone, but he needs to find a way to deter the crowd by saying, hey, look, I've got a rifle here, and if you're not careful, I'll fire it, because I do have a right to not only defend myself, but my family and my property. You know, here you all are destroying my property, and you're, and you're acting, you know, here you are accusing me of being barbaric. Now you all are acting barbaric. You may have a point there, 
But what Ebenezer Richardson does that, to me, is, um, is tragic is the following. After receiving a barrage of stones that were hurled at his window, and remember, Ebenezer Richardson's got the window open, he fires his musket with what's called swan shot. I don't know if how many of you all know of what swan shot is. For those of you who are hunters, you may know this. I don't know if it would apply to hunting, but you, you probably just know the term. Swan shot is where you have small pellets. And once you fire the swan shot, these small pellets spread out. In other words, they come apart and they can go in any direction. Okay, you've got people now. What do you think the chances are that now that Ebenezer Richardson has fired swan shot, that what do you think the chances are that he could end up hitting a person that could have fatal consequences? I think it's 50-50. Well, once the swan shot had been fired and the pellets started spreading out, and, and the pellets did spread out, Ebenezer Richardson um, shot an 11-year-old boy. He ended up shooting someone else, but he shot an 11-year-old boy. This was not an innocent 11-year-old boy. It doesn't make it right that he shot the 11-year-old, but the 11-year-old was participating with the mob. Today, we would think of this 11-year-old as being a juvenile delinquent for the um, activities he was participating in. He, he was throwing stones. He was engaging in chants. Of course, when a child is over the age of 10 in 1770, he or she is considered an adult. And the reason for that is because if a child made it past the age of 10, the parents truly believe that their son or daughter had built up uh, an immune system that was the equivalent of an adult. We have to remember not all children made it past the age of 10. So, so for uh, this 11-year-old boy... He may, in our eyes, he would be considered a child in today's time, but in 1770, he is an adult. So who was the 11-year-old boy whom lost his life on February 22nd, 1770? Did you hear that, folks? He lost his life. His name was Christopher Sider. His death marked a first and that his was linked to hostilities against the crown all in the name of opposition towards existing taxes, most notably the T-tax. Yes, there were some existing taxes still, but the T is the one that really, really irked everyone. And it made them, you know, yes, resort to violence, but the violence did have a um, tragic um, expense, and that is an 11-year-old boy dies. Ebenezer Richardson was also responsible for having wounded a 19-year-old. Did, Eb did um, Christopher Sider get to a hospital, or what we would call like a facility that's the equivalent to a modern-day hospital? Remember, folks, we don't have ambulances, so we don't have a way to, we don't have anything close to modern-day 911. So those who were not uh, wounded took the boy and brought him to um, a doctor, He's not just a doctor, he is a prominent physician in Boston. For those of you who were with me last year when we uh, learned, about, um, learned about the book uh, Founding Martyr, 
uh, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's uh, forgotten hero by Christian de Spigna. Well, that uh, Dr. Joseph Warren tried desperately. He went above and beyond and used every capability that he had to save Christopher Sidere, but he was unable to do so. The young boy's death impacted Dr. Warren so much so that he switched his status from moderate to patriot status. I thought your statuses were lo either loyalist or patriot, but why but why did why was Dr. Joseph Warren a moderate prior to? Well, the reason for that was because Dr. Warren was a well-respected physician by both patriot and loyalist peoples in Boston. Therefore, the most prominent of loyalist families would go to Dr. Warren for assistance. Even when the British first set foot a couple years earlier in Boston, British troops, that is, and the most high-ranking of British officers also went to Dr. Warren for assistance. The reason why they liked him so much was because, for one, he held a noble profession. Two, he catered to both parties. Three, he was not a troublemaker at the time. Is it fair to say that the British, even though their presence in Boston has not been well-liked by the mob crowds, is it fair to say that they do have respect for Dr. Joseph Warren? And is it fair to say that they have far more respect for Dr. Joseph Warren than they do for Samuel Adams? I'd say yes to both of those questions. So Dr. Joseph Warren, even in 1770, is not anywhere close to becoming public enemy number one uh, for the crown. So yes, um, the death of 11-year-old Christopher Sidere, however, does change Dr. Warren's loyalties. He won't go out into the open and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to exclude all loyalist families from coming into my practice. I mean, after all, he still has to treat those who are wounded regardless of their loyalties, but he is going to keep his loyalty, his personal loyalties private. And that's a smart thing to do, because if you mention out in the open where your loyalties are, Dr. Warren could lose everything that he has uh, worked so hard for. I mean, you know, he's not competing with five or six other doctors, folks, in Boston. Dr. Warren is pretty much Boston's only physician. So, in a way, even Dr. Joseph Warren himself is walking a tight rope, or a thin rope, that could... Um, fall apart at any given time. The funeral of Christopher Sidere resulted in a large mass turnout. Six youths carried Sidere's coffin. 400 schoolboys to 2,000 mourners all paid their respects to the Sidere family. Is it fair to say that even Samuel Adams himself used the funeral as propaganda for his agenda? He did. However, he um, he did have a part in helping out with uh, co coordinating the funeral, and you know you can't go wrong with that. But at the same time, if anybody is going to keep the flames alive for this independence movement, it's none other than Samuel Adams. Well, come the following month, March seventeen seventy. 
the start of March that of 1770, King George III appoints Thomas Hutchinson to become governor. Now, I know I mentioned earlier that Thomas Hutchinson was governor, but he was playing he was fulfilling the duties of both lieutenant governor and uh, governor. But now he has become full-time governor, and Peter Oliver now becomes the chief justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. Here's a question uh, to think about in terms of uh, political ideologies. Whom supported uh, Governor Hutchinson and Chief Justice Oliver's stances against radicals' extremism? Loyalist merchants and Boston's moderates, whom were yearning for peace and stability that would result in a modified manner where existing tensions got curtailed. Do you think Dr. Joseph Warren would have been a part of of the uh, Boston moderate faction? Yes. I mean, his loyalties will change over time, but obviously the death of Christopher Sidair has had a um, huge impact on where that will go. In the aftermath of 11-year-old Christopher Sidair's death, tensions amongst the mob, that is the people of Boston, of the unruly crowds, because it, but I think it might be fair to say that there are people in Boston who are not a part of these um, mob crowds and don't want to identify themselves with it, period. So tensions amongst the mob or the people of Boston and British troops remained high to where fights or brawls, I should say, became common ritual norms on a daily basis. Is it fair to say that the mob and the British soldiers who really enjoy going at it with one another, maybe they live under that Old Testament philosophy, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Scary, but hey, you know, we don't, you know, it's easy to think that, oh, that extremism just didn't go on back then. It did. It did, and it's uh, showing at, at its uh, worst. It, it's, it's reaching all new highs daily. All right, who's uh, Samuel Gray? I know he's not a, what we would call, to some of us he may not be considered prominent, but we'll find out here in a moment why he should be uh, mentioned. Well, Samuel Gray is an anti-British fellowman who worked as a rope maker. Okay, so if you're a rope maker, that means you're probably involved with the shipping uh, business. You know, after all, ships do require ropes. And not just, you know, a couple of ropes, lots of ropes. So Samuel Gray is a rope maker, but he had a reputation for being a rough street brawler. So is it fair to say that if Samuel Gray is a rough street brawler, that that Mr. Gray himself is a part of um, mob activities? Yes. March 2nd, 1770. A British soldier is looking for part-time work only to be humiliated by Samuel Gray and other individuals. You know, I, I read in the book exactly what Samuel Gray said to this British soldier. He said, so, well, he said something like this to him. Sure, here's your job. You can, you can clean out my privy. That doesn't sound pleasant, but that's what he said to the British soldier. And the others around Samuel Gray laughed at the soldier. The soldier left, and he brought back a group of his fellow soldiers and said, Hey, look, these people here are trying to humiliate us and treat us like scum, so what happens? 
there is a brawl. This wasn't just a, an isolated brawl, folks. The brawl that took place here would be the first of several brawls between um, the mob crowds and the British troops, or I should say redcoats, that would last for three consecutive days and nights. We could be on to something here, folks. Three consecutive days and nights? Hang tight on that, folks. Was the night of March 5th, 1770, per 18th century standards, a date which would live in infamy? Well, if somebody asked me that question, I'd say yes. For starters, all existing tensions amongst Boston's mobs and British soldiers were reaching new highs daily in terms of violence, extremism, including new lows where no solid where no solid middle ground could be found in bridging existing hatred levels on both sides. So it's probably fair to say that we're, we're not at the 50% threshold on both sides, but I came up with a random number. 47.5% on the side of the um, mob crowd, 47.5% on the British side, the soldiers, then you have 5%, you take 47.5% times uh, 2, that's, or 47.5 times 2, that's 95%. 94.5, or you round it to 95. You take the other 5%, and they're the moderates. They don't really have, they're not really able to have much say. And that's all because of the out-of-control extremism. But March 5th itself was unique largely in part because the day before, on March 4th, a group of redcoats declared blood itself would be shed come the day after, March 5th. Did you hear that, folks? A group of redcoats declared that blood itself, verbally said that blood itself would be shed. There would be violence. I mean, there already is violence, but, there would, but maybe they're saying that there's going to be violence to another extreme. But it's fair to say by now that both sides have had enough of one another's acts of violent extremism, but yet they can't come to the table and, and find common ground to end it. Gangs of young boys resorted to harassing and assaulting the Redcoats from the use of foul language to hurling objects like snowballs, chunks of ice, whole oysters in their shells, stones, glass bottles. My gosh! You know, we think of in today's world with the level of, of accessibility being out of control. Is it fair to say that even in 1770, that the, the uh, what do you call it, that the acquisition of objects was uh, pretty um, accessible? Yes. But you didn't have to go to the stores to buy the objects. Shoot, you've got shells. You know, think of it like oyster shells, for example. You've got, you know, stones, you know like, say, from broken glass that you could throw. Uh, in, in early March of 1770, they know it was, there was still snow on the ground. It was snowing. You know, you've got ice. You, you can attain anything you want to and throw it at someone just to piss them off. It doesn't take much. So if that's bad enough, let's go to Boston's Boylston's Alley. There are mob crowds chanting, following... There are crowds chanting the following words at British junior officers. Cowards! Afraid to fight! In other words, maybe the mob is asking for something to happen. But you know what? There again, they're that 
They're, they're that mean. They're that, how do you call it? They're that angry to the point where they really don't, maybe many of them just don't care what's going to happen. Another mob of 200 converged on Dock Square with wood bats chanting, Fire! Fire! Maybe it's fair to say that the mob, yes, they have a right to be fed up with the presence of British soldiers, but I'm beginning to believe that even the mob themselves are fueling the fire so much so that they are just asking for something so inevitable to happen to where there is a possibility that loss of life is very, very close to taking place. I don't want it to happen, but there is a possibility, a good possibility that somebody's going to fire a shot. What building was located on Boston's King Street that became the final epicenter of events leading up to March 5th, 1770? The final epicenter, folks. The final um, spot where everything just happens. The final spot. How about the Customs House? The Customs House, we shall know what custom, you know, think of customs collectors. Well, the Customs House was the building for which all associated matters that pertain to export and imported goods, or not just the goods, but where the duties themselves were collected. It was the storage site for all for the money, aka the crown's revenues. Private Hugh White, who is on sentry guard duty, he is the only officer outside the customs house on the evening of March 5th, 1770, protecting the outside. Everything seems to be fine, but then all of a sudden, a large, you know, you get maybe 10 or 20 members converge. Then you get another 30 converge. Not everyone's converging at once, but the mob crowd is growing left and right outside the customs house on King Street. The, the mob crowd is assembling at, at a rapid pace left and right to where they begin hurling objects at Private Hugh White. They knock him to the ground. They're humiliating him, but White gets up and he goes inside the customs house. It's a miracle that, that no one literally assaulted him, I mean, that is, physically assaulted him right away with their fists. Hugh White was spared right here in that he just, he got up and he went inside to get back up immediately. Captain Thomas Preston sends out six additional privates and a corporal, including White himself. The taunting and the chants intensify to where some members, to where some of the mob members throw snowballs, ice, oyster shells at the soldiers, knocking a handful of them down. Historians know that no actual command by Captain Thomas Preston was given, but after about three or four soldiers were knocked down with objects, that the inevitable happens next. The British troops begin firing into the crowd. They didn't have time to say, present arms, make ready, take aim, fire. That's not how it happened. If it, Most of you all have seen Paul Revere's famous um, 
depiction of the Boston uh, of the shooting on March 5, 1770. We were led for years to think that that the officer, being Captain Thomas Preston, just told his men to present arms, take aim, and fire at the crowd just randomly. No, that's not how it happened. But the soldiers had been verbally abused and physically assaulted with objects left and right to where you can't blame them for not wanting to take it no more. So after about three or four of them fell to the ground, they finally just said to the, they just said to themselves quietly we're going to fire and they know that their uh, bayonets were fixed they they were ready to go so they fired into the crowd the inevitable happened folks the british troops fired into the crowd and it led to the deaths of five men three died at the scene and the other two died later from their wounds others were wounded the event on march the 5th 1770 became known none other as the Boston Massacre. You know, sadly, uh, massacre means nothing now in today's time. Another school shooting in Michigan. Four students died, a teacher wounded, five or six other students wounded. In 1770, five people died from one particular event by means of gun violence. That was a big deal. You know, when people, multiple people died... It was because of disease. You just didn't think, you just that just didn't happen in 1770 where five people died from gun violence in one night. But it did. It happened. Bells throughout Boston started ringing, but men like John Adams assumed there had been a fire. When he arrived to the scene, he was in disbelief. There was no fire, but instead a shooting where people lay dead and wounded. Men like John Adams and John Hancock were moderates. Yes, Hancock had a strong side to him who was a patriot. So, was, so did John Adams. While these two men, for example, did sympathize to an extent with the mob crowd, they didn't sympathize with them 100%. In other words, John Hancock and John Adams didn't believe that it was right for people to um, take matters into their own hands by... Um, vandalizing the homes and the shops of those loyal to the crown. They didn't believe that um, differences could be resolved by going to such extremes as that. Yes, John and Samuel Adams are cousins, but it's fair to say that both of them have some, difference, have some major um, differences when it comes to their political ideologies. Did Captain Thomas Preston and the eight men under his command go on trial shortly after the massacre incident happened? No, they didn't. For one, Governor Thomas Hutchinson had to restore order to Boston. Yeah, that's a chore unto itself. But secondly, the Crown needed reports from both sides, which came about in the form of pamphlets. In other words, both sides got to tell their version of what led up to March 5th and what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770. For the Americans, their pamphlet was best um, was titled as follows, The Horrid Massacre, whereas for Britain it was titled The Ungrateful Event. And another reason for why uh, Captain Thomas Preston and the eight men under his command uh, did not go to trial shortly after the massacre incident happened was because 
Governor Hutchinson, he probably had a role in this, but there, but the trial needed to be postponed as long as, long as possible because officials needed to have all the time in the world to go about selecting a jury. And I'm not just talking a jury, folks. There needs to be a jury that's going to be impartial. There is a term for what's known as the process of selecting an impartial jury. It's called voir dire, V-O-I-R, second word D-I-R-E, voir dire. The process of selecting an impartial jury. In other words, the jury can't just favor one side over the other. For those of you who um, have not read a whole lot about the Boston Massacre, I strongly um, recommend that you uh, listen to the first podcast I did uh, back in June of 2020, uh, Dan Abrams's uh, book titled John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials. And another one is uh, Eric Hinderaker's Boston's Massacre. I don't have a whole lot of time left for this podcast, but one thing I would recommend doing is if you want to learn more about the Boston Massacre, uh, to you know either read one of the books that I uh, mentioned or uh, listen to the first podcast I did from June of last year or even look up stuff online. Um, I thought I had learned everything there was about the Boston Massacre until reading those two books, but... Um, but it is very. But those books are very well worth reading about that particular event. One thing I do know, and I can just say this real quick for John Adams, he did represent the eight um, soldiers who were accused. He believed that someone needed to represent them. He believed that they deserved to have the right to a fair trial. Two of the eight soldiers were found guilty and were branded. In other words, they got branded on their thumbs with the letter M for manslaughter. John Adams also was best uh, known for saying this, emotions don't override facts. Yes, you can be angry all you want that the, um, that the majority of the soldiers um, did not get branded or that the soldiers were acquitted. But at the end of the day, no matter how emotional you are about something, the emotions, your emotions will not override the facts. Facts are stubborn elements. They can't be changed. Well, John Adams, yes, did receive criticism for defending the soldiers, but somebody had to do it. Even those whom were against the presence of British soldiers actually agreed to have John Adams represent them. Well, after all, you know, we do have John Adams to thank for, um, for the following. The right to a fair and speedy trial, which is uh, in, the, in our Bill of Rights to the United States Constitution. Well, thank you again for listening as always. Um, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to actually get into um, 1773. We're going to uh, talk more about the tea. Uh, we're going to talk really what what leads what will eventually lead up to the uh, ships coming into Boston's harbor with the tea. But in order to understand the events of 1773 and what leads up to that Boston Tea Party movement, it, it sure is fair to say that we had to cover a lot of other ground to get to that point. But it has been worth it because events themselves just don't happen overnight. Other events occur that lead to what we call the grand finale. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Take care for now and stay safe.